Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington president at Jazz Education Network and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. Welcome to all of the people who are um, watching our live stream today. Um, Billions and zillions. Well, the maybe two, <laughs> let's just be honest here. Um, we don't have a lot of live watchers. It's okay because we're tired teachers on a Friday afternoon, right? Dude. And For so sure. um, it's a Friday afternoon and Kelly and I were just talking about how um, this new world of meeting online opens up so many collaboration avenues, which has been super great, but it's also like one of those red flags you need to watch out for. I've got like five times more meetings now yeah, me too. than I did pre-COVID. And I yeah. thought I had a lot of meetings pre-COVID and I keep yeah. saying yes, because I get to be in my sweatpants with my doggies, but I'm concerned about when real life starts to kick in and like yep. trying to maintain this. You find yourself entrenched in different committees and different things. It's just having a healthy outlook about your involvement in things is a good thing. And let's, let's wish that upon all of us. Go ahead and check in with that. <laughs> yeah. Do a self-assessment on that. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, I would like to introduce our guest today. This is Anu Truax, and she is um, just kind of the consummate educator. She teaches at Cascade K-8, which is a Seattle Public Schools um, K-8 school, and it's an alternative, alternative learning. Alternative learning. Yes. And she is also one of the adjunct professors at SPU. Um, Seattle Pacific University, that is, folks, um, where she teaches a course to all pre-service educators um, about diversity, equity, and inclusion in education. And this is a very, very important course. Um, and so I'm lucky at Ballard High School to get to work at length with Anu because she is also a Ballard High School parent um, and she volunteers her time to work on various committees in our school and leadership bodies in our school. Um, but one of the coolest committees we get to work on together is what we call Strong Start. And we've talked a little bit about Strong Start on the show before with a previous guest, Laura Laney, who is also involved in the same committee at Ballard High School. Um, but I have learned so many neat ideas just in being able to talk with you, Anu, um, 
and just work with you. And, and it's such a great thing to be able to bring these cool ideas to fruition for the entire student body at Ballard. And um, I wanted to bring you on this show because these ideas are across the spectrum of all subjects and music teachers sometimes, and I think we're gonna be we're gonna be dealing with this as we work on going back to school in person. Um, music teachers and teachers of specific subjects, um, not just music teachers, but people who are entrenched in their subject matter, we sometimes get um, away from the, I'm an educator feeling. And we sometimes, I think, get away from what we can do as educators to serve the whole student. The whole student is not just a music student in my orchestra. The whole student has six different classes that they go to during the day. And the whole student is a whole human that's just been or is going through um, the pandemic. And um, what- They have a life outside of our classroom. Right. Right. But honestly, in my early years of teaching, I never once thought about me. Like a kid, I would hear a kid, a music kid's like name announced in the daily bulletin for winning, you know, the science fair or something. And I'd be like, whoa, <laughs> they do other stuff. Like I just, right. that's so crazy to me. And um, next you're going to tell me that teachers have lives too. Don't, don't what? Even go there. <laughs> we pull no. out like a fold away bed in the back room of the, the band room. That's, that's where we live and sleep. <laughs> I mean, my dad is an elementary school teacher. That's such a great point that you, you're both bringing up. I think that that's so valuable because I think when we talk about issues of race and equity, that is so crucial or culturally responsive teaching that's so crucial to be able to welcome the whole student into the classroom and not to have them have to partition and say, well, these are the parts of me that are welcome here. And these are the parts that I have to leave at the door. And as soon as we force them to do that, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a dominant narrative again. And, and we're, it's that issue of control, it's that issue of, of hierarchy and somebody deciding for someone else um, what part of you gets to be in this space. Mm -hmm. um, so I think as soon as we start to consider equitable instruction, we have to give that freedom and that invitation for the entire student to be welcomed into the classroom. It's like, I'm feeling kind of vulnerable today. Oh, totally. And yeah. I will share that it's like a really scary, I used to teach, I had classes with rosters of 118 in my first year at Washington Middle School and that never changed. So, you know, you think about having, you know, a hundred plus kids, middle schoolers with noisemakers in their hands and to consider relinquishing any control is a really terrifying concept because you know my regular dream nightmare <laughs> you know the like august as august approaches my every night nightmare was <laughs> me starting class and the kids collectively deciding that i was jive 
and that they were going to go ahead and revolt. And what would I do? Now this never happened, but it was like a regularly occurring fear as not just a beginning teacher. We're talking halfway through my career at this point. And, and maybe there's some reasonable thought in there, right? Like we've all seen classrooms that are out of control and that's a dangerous and a harmful situation um, for kids. Kids need to feel safe in our classrooms. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but where is that line? How do we know? How do we find it? How do we dance around it? And it's, I, I, I think that a lot of teachers struggle with this idea of where is this, where is control appropriate? Where is it not? How do we establish boundaries? And um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, and I'm learning. I mean, I'm totally on that journey. Like I, I am learning every day about that. But what I realized that's so awesome is that, that the students can help with that, that the students can participate in naming the places where they need freedom and where they need consistency, where they need to be able to walk into the environment and know certain things are a given and are not gonna change um, in terms of how they're treated, in terms of how students are gonna talk to one another or talk to me. Um, And they can also participate in naming the freedoms that they're after. Um, And I think one of the things that's been really interesting in this season of remote learning Mm. has been um, because I'm seeing my students um, not only through the screen, but for less time. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've had to build in so many structures for connection outside of the class time. And I'm finding so many, um, so much being shared there. So that's been really interesting to me because there's a different kind of control that can happen then. Um, So there's a freedom that's new because the student is able to reflect, they're able to do it on their own time. Things like like discussion boards where instead of a live class discussion, if we do a discussion board that the student can come when they're ready, they can type and then edit and then Oh, I don't, I don't really want to put that out there. Okay, let me try this. Um, they've got these um, freedoms, um, but then there's also a different kind of control because I can see what's put there. I can go back to a student and say, hey, did you mean for that to come across like this? Um, mm-hmm. Something that I don't always have in a live classroom. So I think it's fascinating to kind of explore the different structures and to see that sometimes it needs to happen live, sometimes it needs to happen in different spaces. Sometimes I remember students would do written reflections and they would share all kinds of things. Um, so yeah, trying to explore all those different um, possibilities I think is really important. I wonder... he would go you said it and forget it and I love the idea 
Now I know, Ronco, now I know. Ronco, yes! I love the idea of coming up with a way we do things and just setting it and forgetting it. And it's a beautiful concept, but it doesn't work with kids who are living in a world that is ever changing. Like as much as I want to establish my classroom norms and how I do things for my career, that is not what's best for kids. It's what's best for me. Yeah. It is not what's best for kids. We have to continue to change our practice. And um, that's a really good reminder to me. Like we're learning things right now about how kids might want to interact. Um, I hear so many teachers constantly um, lamenting like the amount of kids that don't have their cameras on Mm -hmm. and how hard it is to check in with their understanding. And I totally get that. I share that concern. I read the crowd. That's what one of my Mm -hmm. core competencies is reading the crowd. Yep. You know, like seeing the looks on the faces and judging the responses and knowing is it time to move on? Is it time to repeat this information? This is something I'm really good at. And it's been taken from me because they're not, because their screens are off. Yeah. And so, God, how do we, how do we overcome that? But not just for right now, but what are the takeaways from that that can continue on in our practice and, you know? And, you know, more specifically for music teachers and the set it and forget it, um, I don't know, mantra, I think we music teachers um, will fall back on doing things like, we're just gonna rehearse. That's my lesson plan. We're just gonna rehearse. So we get out a music score and we say, get out Beethoven. Bloggity blah score. And and that's how we spend the hour. And um, we don't put, and I'm guilty of this too. Oh yeah. Uh, until until now, since I've had to reinvent everything, you know, um, but spend the hour, you know, just unpacking this set of measures in, you know, a piece of music, but not connecting it to anything except for an upcoming performance. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's 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 been really um, just kind of mind-blowing for me to recognize um, that teaching is only a little bit about the content and Mm -hmm. that so much of it is about the practice and that I need to be a continual student of practices. You know, I need to be a student of my students. I need to be a student of the world. I need to understand culture and cultural shifts. And I need to be marrying all of that. What's exciting, I think, is that there are people all over the country trying new things. There are educators continually trying new things. And in today's age, we actually have access to that. Like we can actually find out what different people are trying in different places. What's working, what's not. Yeah. yeah. And then we try it and maybe it doesn't work right away for us, but then we can 
go back to the students and say, what did you think? You know, sometimes I've done something and to me it was a total flop. And then I've asked the students and they've said, well, there was one little problem, but if you fix that, we loved everything else. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> glad you told me that. Never would have thought of that. And so this, this uh, reality that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We have people out there that we can learn from. Mm -hmm. We have people with us that we can learn from. Um, but we have to be engaging in that. We have to be, and that's the hardest part, I think, of being an educator is doing that continual learning from others, bringing it in, and then learning again from the students. And that refinement over and over is I mean, we all know the reasons teachers aren't doing that. There's the obvious reasons. We're friggin' exhausted. Right. I I mean, tired all the time, right? And mm -hmm. and you know, martyring oneself for the cause is not the best way to live. Not suggested. Yeah. Not suggested. And you know, as I've seen so many cautionary band director tales of like teacher a drinking a fifth of you know vodka under their desk and getting fired i mean how there's so many band director stories like that right just total burnout yeah yeah you know it's that's a real thing yeah and you know feeling undervalued all the time yeah but and, and also like not feeling comfortable taking feedback. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. It's, it's really a paradigm shift. It's a huge mm -hmm. paradigm shift. It's, it's being willing to say, this isn't about me covering content. This isn't a top down. I've got the answers mm -hmm. that I shall give to you. It's a whole paradigm shift, but you know, I kind of, I think about as educators, there's being drained um, and there's, um, and there's also, there's being energized, right? Like mm -hmm. if you're doing something and you know, it's just not working. It's just not connecting. That is in some ways more, way more draining because, because mm. it's so demotivating. Right. Yes. And, mm -hmm. and you know, you're just not getting it and you're not, having, not hitting the mark, not hitting the mark. And then you can have you can put in effort to something and it's tiring, but then it clicks and suddenly you have all the energy in the world because something- I mean, this is why teachers are so resilient because as soon as you're with the kids yeah. and everything's booping around, it's like total, total refresh. Like yeah. I feel like a kid of 16 again, you know, <laughs> when everything's working and then you're re-energized and you forget all of that other stuff and you're in it. And, um, I mean, that's, that's how people I think are able to teach for their whole career. Yeah. Um, but I just really feel like music teachers are so far behind this concept. We are almost every music teacher that I know considers themselves to be more of a technician right than an educator interesting and myself in college I mean there are interviews with me early on in my teaching career definitely hinting at thinking of myself as a technician 
That is why I got into the business. I was really good at identifying things that sounded like crap and fixing it. Yeah. That's what a lot of me, most I'd say probably 90% of music teachers value about yeah. what they have to offer. Honing an ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The sort of fine tuning, like a mechanic or something. Right. And I just wonder about why does it seem that elementary school teachers and language arts, social studies teachers seem to be thriving right now. And the rest of us kind of over in the STEM world, if you will, are melting down right now. Well, there's something in it. Let me, let me bring up like something that you mentioned and you, um, that, that seemed freeing to me, but might be stressful to others. You were talking about content really is less of a percentage or should be less of a percentage of what you're doing than you think. (laughs) Um, Being freed from the content, that, that seems freeing to me a little bit like, oh, you mean I don't have to spend all of my time working on your intonation with you? We can work on other things about being a human, other things about being an artist, other things about being creative, other things about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion, other things about- Being a human in the world. Yeah, decolonizing a music curriculum. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it is actually a valid way to spend time. Yeah. Yeah, that's freeing to me. Absolutely. And I think that um, so it's interesting. There's um, there's two things that are that are coming to my mind right now. Um, One of them is that um, I got to hear um, uh, a speech about a year ago um, by a gentleman, um, Dr. Joe Johnson, and he works out of San Diego University for um, it's a long name but it's the National Center for Urban School Transformation. And basically what he and his team do is they go um, around the country and they find schools that are defying the odds. Schools where according to the demographics, they should not, you would not expect them to be thriving. And their pockets, like all the schools around them are not thriving. Um, They, you wouldn't expect them to be thriving, but they are. Beth and I worked at a school like that together. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so, um, and then- What's the magic that makes that school? Yes. And then they take that from all these different pockets and combine and they say, okay, what's the, what are the commonalities? And one of the commonalities that they found, which is so exciting is these schools are covering less content. They're covering less content, but the students' test scores are higher. Okay, because when you were talking about covering content, I less content. I thought to myself, that sounds like move on. When if I have a moment, I want to ask because people are going to talk about test scores. Right, I cover less content. What about test scores and my job performance? And they're having higher test scores. And not only that, but higher test scores 
across all dem demographics, across all student population. And that's part of what they require to be, you know, selected as one of these awesome- um, Of note. Is that, <laughs> is that it's not just like, you know, a certain student subgroup that's doing well, but it has to be across all um, demographics of the student population. So they're getting higher test scores because the reality is when we speed through content and we don't connect it to anything meaningful for our students, they don't retain it and they don't think deeply about it. And it doesn't really become theirs. But when we pause and we sink in deeply and we invite them to come shape the content, we really engage their critical thinking skills we encourage them to be creative, to, to make it culturally relevant. Um, we let them embrace it through their own learning style. You know, we, we have all these, now that's theirs. That's really theirs now. And they've engaged on a much deeper level. They retain it, um, they, get, they get more out of it to begin with, but then they retain it and they build on it. And so now they've got this real education happening instead of just exposure. Mm -hmm. in instead of what I did, which was memorize the mm -hmm. flashcards one hour before the test. Yeah. <laughs> get a hundred percent because I have amazing short-term memory. Yeah. And then not retain it. I, I, there are years of my education where I have no idea. Sure. Well, I don't know. This, sure. this could be related back to music on so many levels you know like super like super duper high performing like middle school orchestras uh yeah. they are spending all their time working on the tchaikovsky not talking about learning or um not not working on anything but drilling down on something you know, and then you put this group of kids on a stage and they perform the Tchaikovsky gloriously. Um, but what, what do they really know about music and themselves as a musician? And, you know, they might win a trophy. So, and that's another thing in the world of music performing arts is that we've, um, we've moved it to this sports model where you compete against other music ensembles and the people who re receive a trophy are the ones that, or the, the ensembles that receive a trophy are the ones that are good. And the teachers of those students are considered the good teachers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, teachers who are taking a departure from simply preparing for a competition their kids might not perform the Tchaikovsky as well at the competition because they've been busy, you know, doing some outreach in the community, or maybe they've been um, learning a lot about the music business or music tech, like sound engineering, or maybe they're composing, or maybe they're doing all kinds of other cool things, but because they um, didn't, spend all that time going back and drilling down on the Tchaikovsky when they went to perform it for a panel of judges they um didn't do as good and therefore all is like you know 
canceled out as far as <laughs> well it's an immediate we suck yeah. i don't even know why i do this right you know? <laughs> yeah and i think there are certain paradigms that we really need to embrace to do this work and i mean i i relate to what you're saying um one of the things um i'm not sure if, if i ever shared this with you beth but i teach so i teach two subjects one is social justice and the other is math mm -hmm. and and i started as a math teacher later when I realized this is actually a social justice justice issue, how we teach math. Mm -hmm. it's like oh, yeah. you're, you know, it's all about test scores. It's all about, you know, um, for the best students going to a math competition. Mm -hmm. you know, it's all graded. It's not about, um, well, are you a good problem solver? Like, how do you approach problems? Problems in math or problems in life? Like, that's actually a valuable conversation. Totally. That's, that's not the kind of thing that most math teachers are talking about. So I can really relate to what you're saying, but I think that, I think it was like maybe two years ago that it hit me because I see there's so many paradigm shifts that need to happen, you know, in order for me personally to engage in this work um, or invite others into it. And one of them is I have three words that I cling to, gradual, internal, and organic. What I'm striving to give to my kids is not gonna show up necessarily in this external trophy. Mm -hmm. or, right. you know, it's not gonna show up in a certain way external. It's gonna be internal. And it may take a lot of time before anybody recognizes that, including my students, including me, may yeah. take some time before, because what we're trying to build here is, is really big. We're trying to, we're really talking about transforming society, like a little bit at a time. So this is, I got to be in this for the long game. You know, I have right. to have this, this long-term perspective. I have to be after internal change, not these external evidence of my greatness as an educator. Right. And, and of course, those values are pretty anti-American in a lot of ways. Yeah, so it's totally. like constantly having to remind right. yourself. Right, right. Mm. Yeah. So gradual, internal, and then the third one is organic because control, right? We want control. We want to be able to, um, see, you know, even, even in these areas, even when it comes to equitable instruction, you know, rate issues of race and equity, like I still see so much desire to control, mm -hmm. um, and not sharing the power with the ones that we're trying to serve mm. with our students, giving them an equal voice. Um, but part of that is whatever happens in them, I can't control it. It is organic. It is like, you know, trying to control the exact height that my plant's going to grow or the exact number of fruit, you know, on, on this berry bush. It's ridiculous. I can't control that like that. I can plant seeds. I can water, you know, but this is organic. This is, this is human, live human beings and their growth is going to surprise me. So those are like three words that I cling to, to kind of. <laughs> those are good ones. It's the, the concept of um, 
gradual change is a really hard one for me to accept because I, first of all, just not a patient person by nature, Mm -hmm. but also, um, I worry about, I worry about accepting gradual change. I see, I see that as maybe a problem because white people have like resisted maybe any change Mm -hmm. and have maybe accepted that things might change ever so slightly for our own comfort Mm -hmm. and I don't think that's good I I think that there are some real systemic changes that need to happen yesterday yeah and I'm not patient for them to shift and I don't think that's what you're saying yeah you're talking about students growing as humans and human growth is Mm -hmm. a different thing yeah and um I uh that's really interesting that you say that because I, I I I've I wondered a lot you know I replaced a really famous teacher and when I was a student of Bob Nats high school kids would come back a lot to visit him And I, when I took over his job, I never really had high schoolers come back to visit me. And I thought, you know, I didn't touch them the same way or, um, you know, I wasn't as gregarious or, you know, maybe there were just reasons, but what, you know, it was fine. They didn't want to come visit. That's cool. It doesn't mean I wasn't a great music teacher. But what's interesting to me is that now that these students are in college, yep. they're coming back. Yeah, that's and that's a gra- that's gradual. Yeah, right. Me and and I don't and I'm not sure if that has anything to do with what you just said, yeah. but it sure makes me think about the yeah. fact that maybe their music education was just more gradual right. than what they had sure. before I came to town. Yeah. And that maybe that's okay. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Definitely. There's so much about this. I, I had a student once and really a remarkable experience for me. Um, he came into my classroom and right away started bad mouthing everything I did. <laughs> and it, and and we've uh, all had those (laughs) (laughs) and um and our staff was like you know he doesn't need to be in that class if he's they you know kind of tried talking to him a couple times didn't really work and um they were like well he doesn't really need to be there if this isn't clicking he can just you know kind of be pulled out and I was like yes let's do that Mm. That let's go with that idea (laughs) And then right away, I was like, no, actually, I can't actually, I can't actually do that. That's not right. Um, And, um, and we stuck it out, you know, and, um, and then we had a project that he just really got into and really clicked with him. It had a lot of open-endedness to it. And he was able to shape it into something meaningful for him. He got a lot of peer compliments on it. And he's, stopped all the negativity, but he still wouldn't like really uh, like do a lot of the homework, you know, 
He would just kind of show up to class and do what he could there. Dabble in learning. <laughs> dabble, dabble, only preferred tasks, you know, sure. if it hit him just right. And, and then the next year he took my, my class again, it was like an elective and he signed up a second time, which was really unusual. And um, we watched a video clip about, um, you know, like, just like inner city situation, long story. But anyway, he stayed afterwards. And this is now like a year and a half that he's been with me stayed after class, didn't get up from his seat, just sat there thinking. And then he goes, Miss Anu, thank you for inspiring me. And I just played a video clip that I had no idea was going to hit him that way. But he got up from there and he was different. And he signed up for tutoring five days a week. He wanted to, like, his education suddenly mattered to him. Mm -hmm. And if I could make that a formula and apply it to every student you know I would try <laughs> you just don't know yeah. each student's formula What's is gonna different. stick no, for it's, you. Organic. it's organic it's also terrifying because yeah. you yeah. know you start to think am I on this day I'm having a bad day and I say something I totally don't mean or just bomb a lesson is that the thing they're gonna retain <laughs> you know like yeah yeah That's scary but I don't know I think we don't give kids enough credit right. right definitely so definitely so they are so mature they're they are resilient and they um they are eager to see our vulnerability yeah because they're carrying their own vulnerability around and, and they, it makes them feel safe yeah. yeah yeah you know something you said earlier in the episode um kind of comes back to me now about kids know what they need to check at the door before they walk in to be able to work with you as the teacher yeah in um you know um a way that works um and I wonder like how I as an educator and how I cause kids to do that and you know, what they're checking at the door in order to come and partake in my offerings, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I just, I wonder how we as teachers can create spaces where like the whole student can walk in or a student who may not, and for, for music, it means a lot to, um, to us, like enrollment means a lot because it's it's an elective. Kids it's an elective. To, yeah, kids elect into our class. And if they so, don't, we don't have a job. <laughs> if they don't, we don't have a job. And when they don't, it means they're not seeing themselves in our offerings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, those are great, great points. One of the things that we talk about in my class at SPU is recognizing our role, mm. being reflective about what our role is, acknowledging like this, um, that we're kind of like, that we, we are like the guard at the door, mm -hmm. you know, we're kind of standing there, whether, whether we, we intend to or not, we're standing there, we're saying, you shall not pass, you know, like, mm -hmm. um, 
or put that down and then you can come in we're, that we're doing that. Um, so first recognizing it ourselves mm-hmm. and then taking that really scary step of saying that to the students mm-hmm. and actually saying, this is the, this is the position we find ourselves in. This is not actually what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. I want to actually share power with you. And it's terrifying, but it's also incredibly freeing Um, because when we tell them we want to share power with them and then we actually create mechanisms by which that can happen, suddenly everybody owns the space and it's not all on us anymore. So even though though it's so scary, it's also so, so, so empowering because now there's that many teachers. much. Um, I had a conversation when I first became a math teacher, like about a semester in, I was noticing some things happening in the class and trying to figure out how to address the dynamic. And, um, And we had a class where I asked them, what do you think I see you as? Who do you think you need to be in this place? Who do you think I want you to be in this place? You know, and they were like, well, you want us to be smart. You want us to know how to do math problems. You want to, and I'm like, you know, like. I don't actually want any of those things. uh, Yeah. Such a defined, um, you know, such a strict image of what I would accept. And, um, you know, part of that may have been me. Part of that may have been like, you know, all the other math teachers they'd had all, all the while that they'd been in school families, movies, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, what, and, you know, and I said, actually, I want you to be your entire self, you know, and what do you think I'm trying to accomplish here? Well, you want us to know how to do math problems. Well, actually, I want you to um, learn about yourself, learn about the world, teach me about the world, teach me about you. Like, it just enlarged our conversation for me to say, what do you think I want of you? Let's talk about this. What do I actually want to invite you into? What would be the greatest experience for you anywhere? And how do we do that here? Mm. What are the things that bring you the most joy anywhere? How do we do that here? Well, when I get to create something, okay, then you can be creative in math class. When Mm. I get to draw into my talent over here, all right, then how do we bring that? When I can help somebody else, okay, then you help other people in this class. Like, what is the thing that makes you most you somewhere else? And how do we do that here? Because I want you to be your complete self in this space. Um, oh, man. I'm just like, I'm thinking about like how like we have this moment right now when um, like while we're in COVID and doing all of these like we're doing remote, we're doing hybrid. Um, things have changed greatly. Students have been through so many things. Mm-hmm. They've lived through some serious trauma. And all of them. Trauma, all of them. And we know that us. many of our students do anyways, yeah. but we know definitively that everyone has lived through remote learning, right? <laughs> for, me, for me, it seems like imperative that when we go back into the classroom 
with students um, or even in the work we're doing now remotely. When we go back into the classroom with students that we get that message clear to them um, and we ask that question, that should be question one. And um, how is it that we can build that here? in this class, in this school, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? Um, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking like, you know, music teachers get so like bogged down with, oh no, I mean, we gotta, kids in 11th grade need to know how to shift. We're gonna have to work on fingering techniques and we have a concert coming up and there will be adjudicators. We need to get a gold ranking. You know, we don't have time. That would take forever for me to find out what every student in the orchestra needs. We don't have time for that. Um, I could probably do 10 minutes at the end of class. Um, but, you know, kind of the feeling I'm getting from you right now, Anu, is that it would be very valuable for us to take numerous hours, numerous days, a week, weeks, doing this work um, and letting it inform yeah. the curriculum that we are building. And I believe that curriculum needs to be more than just preparing music for performance. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think that I think sometimes we lose sight of the bigness of what education should be and we make it something small. Mm -hmm. It's really meant to be something amazing and enormous. And um, with culturally responsive teaching, um, what I always think about is this idea of like the past and the present and the future. And our kids all have different paths like no two kids are walking in our door with the same set of experiences right. the same anxieties the same hope you know like they've had they've all had a different path they've lived lives they've lived lives they've lived experiences you know they've had every single student that walks in they're you know like different path different path different path to get into our door and where are they going from here? They're all going to have different paths coming out. Mm -hmm. You know, none of them are going to go out and live the exact same life. They're going to be called to different things. They're going to succeed in different ways. You know, they're, they're going to shape the world in different ways. Um, so they have unique paths coming out as well. And so we're together for this moment in time, right? And it, if I'm only focused on this moment and I forget that they have all these different things bringing them here and all these different futures, then I'll try to do this cookie cutter, you know, one size fits all experience. But if I keep in mind the diversity of their pasts and the diversity of their futures, then I'm gonna view this moment differently. And I, I always think of it like a puzzle, you know, and everybody is a unique piece of this puzzle. And yes, we fit together. Yes, we want to make a beautiful image when we come together. We want to find a way to connect, to snap together, and to have our this moment be one of intertwined experience. Mm. But everybody's going to do it uniquely. 
And that's good because that makes the picture more beautiful. Um, so with that culturally responsive teaching, to, to show them that picture and to say, all right, mm. you help me figure out what your piece looks like. I can't figure it out for you. You need to help me and you need to help me figure out how that's going to connect to the other pieces around you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a big fan of small group work and kids learning through this together, you know, and um, but take, take your background and tell me how is, how is that going to help shape your experience here as we talk about music or mm -hmm. here as we talk about math? What is it in your past? You know, what are the things you're going to bring that are really going to help us that's going to be unique to you? And then where are you going to take it? What are you going to do with this afterwards? Um, this is just a moment. Um, and we want to make the most of this moment by recognizing the journey, the long-term journey. Um, yeah. And the practices within, right? Mm -hmm. Like um, for, um, for us, small group work looks like getting kids into small ensembles. Yeah. Sectionals, chamber groups. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, I believe that's a, a way that Kelly and I have been able to affect huge change with students, cool. um, especially giving them choice within um, age-appropriate parameters, you know, yeah. um, scaffolding and stuff like that. Um, I think that it's totally possible and um, we, we as instrumental music teachers in the secondary setting tend to rely upon large group experiences, full class experiences, um, mostly, but I'm here to advocate for um, making sure that those small group experiences with student choice built in and um, student, have it be student driven as much as humanly possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm here to advocate that that allows so much cool stuff to happen. Um, and it's, it is that gradual thing that leads later to organic development of the human that um, that leaves our classroom walls and we need to see beyond those classroom walls. We need to see, like, that needs to be so much the goal um, for all planning that we do. See beyond those classroom walls. Who are these humans that are going to um, go out and carry the torch later or yeah. create something new later? Um, I. Um, I have kind of an experience like you were talking about new that kind of like blew my mind. Um, and especially in my, my newness at Ballard, it's only my third year there. I like to say it's my junior year, <laughs> but in my um, freshman year at Ballard, <laughs> I um, was host to a side-by-side -side concert with the, the Seattle symphony. And so the students at Ballard played along with the symphony and that was kind of it was a pretty major moment for me VIP. You know? like that's cool that's pretty vip um that's pretty neat and the kids really rose to the challenge um 
it was a hard sell. I don't know why they weren't stoked about the opportunity, but we were having some transition time for Miss Fortune, the new Ballard Orchestra teacher at the time. So, um, you know, they totally rose to the challenge and it was a really neat concert. But after the concert, my partner and I, who is also a music educator, by the way, my partner and I um, got in the car after we put away all the chairs in the gym, because the concert had to be in the gym, BT Dub. Um, <laughs> put all the chairs away and, you know, got everything put away. And he was like, why don't we go have dessert? And so we went up to, um, we went up to the coffee shop on 15th and 80th. What is it called again? Um, I've, you and I have gone there, Kelly. Is it uh, it's like Norwegian, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 That place. So it's this cool coffee shop. Yeah. They serve um, desserts. They serve beer and wine. They also host live music. So we pull up outside and we kind of wanted just like, you know, a quiet space. And Scott was like, it looks like they're having live music. Should we go somewhere else? And I was like, no, I don't really feel like driving anywhere else. It's close. Let's go in and, you know. So as it turns out, we walk in and the band playing is a group of a mixed group of strings and band students that Kelly and I taught. Students. Yep, that Kelly and I taught at Washington Middle School way back in the day. And they had in their college and late high school years, because it was a mix of college and late high school aged kids, they had formed a band. They had the band together, man. They got, the, they got the band together. They composed all kinds of cool, out there, funky music. And they were working for pay at the coffee shop, playing a gig on Friday wow. night. Wow. And um, like, after, like, we walked in, the kids saw me and they saw my partner, who they also know as a a music educator and they're like he's kind of a big deal <laughs> oh my he's also another one of those big deal dudes um but they saw us and they were like and so you know we're sitting there eating our piece of cake and um you know having having like the wind down period after a big huge concert and enjoying these kids music and um you know they go to a set break and i see someone just pushing through the crowd and it's this kid, Daniel. It was and, the Lord. It was yes. the Lord. Right. So this kid is like, misfortune. I just got to say that you changed my life. And I'm sitting there after this concert at Ballard, right, with the Seattle Symphony. And I'm not having the smoothest of transitions. The kids didn't really buy into it. And yet they performed super well with the Seattle Symphony. And then this, and that was a pivotal moment for me because we threw those kids that we saw at the coffee shop, we threw them into so many different scenarios of, okay, you, I'm gonna give you the name of the band and you're like, you know, earth, wind and fire, go. <laughs> like, we were like, you're creating earth, wind and fire music now, go. Go. <laughs> <laughs> and these kids would like, do it and they would do it from scratch and do it so artistically and so well back in you know middle school 
But then here they are at this coffee shop getting paid to play music creatively. Um, just such a moment. But the best, there are two things that I selfishly love about that story. One, Beth texted me immediately from said coffee shop, which is called The Dane. The Dane. That was pretty close. (laughs) The Dane. (laughs) That was pretty close. And, um, And also that that student was a student who we never would have known appreciated what was happening. Right. Because in the moment, I would have sworn that that kid hated me, everything I had to say, (laughs) and was just like dying to get out of my classroom and on to the next. Totally. And that is absolutely not the case. That is absolutely not the case. That carefully designed, these carefully designed um, experiences that Kelly and I curated for these kids changed their lives. And I mean, just enough said. Um, So, well, also, um, P.S. That kid, the Lord, was in a metal band. And when Beth and I were invited to speak as like the speakers at the Montana Music Educators Association conference, we took our students. But the Lord and his posse had a metal band together. Yep. And Beth booked them a show at the local metal club and we took all of our students oh man to like the club where they played you know russian stuff (laughs) so So that was cool also (laughs) very cool and you know um like another real life experience for the lord and um like that's he's gonna turn that into a profession i know he will for sure that is so awesome that's (laughs) what a great story it's a it's a great thing and you know um it gives me hope that gradual change happens you know it gives me hope that yeah gradually we can transform you know what what i'm doing at ballard and gradually we can affect change in music education overall and um yeah yeah you know that's just that's just the hope and um i'm gonna accept, try and accept into my heart the idea <laughs> that gradual <laughs> change is still change yeah and yeah. still positive and it doesn't all happen have to happen tomorrow even though i want it to <laughs> and i'm gonna really try hard to and that now is the time to to start right now we're in this like right. moment we have a moment let's use it let's use it and let's invite everybody possible into it absolutely our students and though 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 it may be gradual part of why it's gradual is because what we're seeking is profound profound change not superficial change and for that we need those partners we need our kids in it with us and if we have them as our partners and we share power then it can be profound so (laughs) i really love you (laughs) very much i told you kelly i know it's my favorite is when um one of us doesn't know the guest and we kind of (laughs) like spring them on another the other person 
It's amazing. <laughs> and it's also 5.05. Yes, what? it's time to sign off. And um, oh. so thank you, Anu, for being a part of this. And thanks for the work that you do at Ballard. And I'm just excited for the work we get to continue doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. yes. Yeah. It was a real pleasure. Happy yes. Friday, ladies. Yes. Now go enjoy yourself. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product, and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us, and we are delighted you've decided to join.